Hello, and welcome to the Revelation to John. My name is J.R. Foresteros, and I am the teaching pastor at Beaver Creek Church of the Nazarene in Dayton, Ohio. You can find me on my blog at jrforesteros.com. And if you have any questions as you go through this podcast, you can email me at jrforesteros at gmail.com. That's jrforesteros at gmail.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast as well as to my sermon podcast by searching for me in iTunes or clicking the link on my blog. To aid you in going through this study, you can also download a couple of different resources, both the PowerPoint slides that I use when I teach and also a note sheet if you like to take notes and they're good things to save for later. You can download both of those things at my blog by searching for the Revelation study and then uh, each note sheet and PowerPoint slide is downloadable from the link on the sermon series engine each week. Finally, a note on the format of this podcast. Uh, I am recording this as I am teaching a class, so you often will not be able to hear some of the comments and feedback that the class members make. I will do my best to say those back into the microphone for the podcast, but in case you don't hear those things, uh, I'm sorry, that's just the nature of the format and my recording limitations. All that said, thanks a lot for listening. I hope that you enjoy the podcast, and without any further ado, here is the Revelation study. Tonight we are, again, we're starting with chapter, oops, sorry about that, let's try that again. We're starting with, uh, we're going to be in the middle of the last section of the book. So we started with a letter from a prophet named John, and all we really know for sure about John is that he was in exile on the island of Patmos. He said he was there for the sake of the Lord, and we talked about how we're not really sure what that means, but it's evidence that there was some kind of persecution going on. And he was worshiping on a Sunday, and he received a revelation of Jesus. Uh, Jesus appears to him and gives him a what, what he, just what he called a revelation, an unveiling, uh, an inside look at reality. And John was told to write letters to the seven churches that were on this mail route in the Roman province of Asia, which is modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. And so you had these seven cities, and in the cities were different churches. And all of the churches were facing pressures just like, you know, every church does. But they were all essentially trying to wrestle with the question, how do we remain faithful to Christ in a culture that is faithless? Uh, and maybe not faithless, but at least faithful to different gods, uh, to the Roman gods, to the Roman way of life. And some of the churches were remaining faithful to Christ at a high cost. Some of them were remaining faithful to become very legalistic and uh, were actually then drifting away from the gospel. Uh, some of them were compromising. They had allowed false prophets into their churches who were advocating some form of compromise between the way of Christ and the way of Rome, saying you could sort of have your cake and eat it too, and it was okay. And then some of the churches had become so compromised with the culture that it was questionable whether they were even really churches at this point. Uh, and so one of them had the rep reputation of being alive, even though they were dead. And then one of them was so compromised and so encultured that the metaphor Jesus used, he showed up to town and no one even recognized who he was uh, because he, the church had so little active presence in the culture. No one even knew what this guy, uh, what Jesus looked like when he showed up. And so Jesus is revealed through John's revelation to these seven churches and all of them, no matter what their problem is, no matter how they're responding to these tensions with their cultures, the answer was always to get a better look at Jesus. If, if, you, if you understand more fully who Jesus is, 
then that will heal the problems in your church. And so that's that's why this book is called The Revelation. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ to John. And so we are we have been talking about our own culture and where we are tempted to compromise and how understanding more clearly who Jesus is can help us understand those things. And so after the first 3 chapters, after these uh, after John took the dictation of these seven letters, he was caught up into heaven into the heavenly throne room. And this is the Wizard of Oz part of the book, where uh, where God peels back the curtain of reality, and John gets to see what's actually going on behind the scenes. Uh, even though it looks like Rome rules, and it looks like Rome's way is the way, that, it, that the Pax Romana really is your best chance to find fulfillment and wholeness, uh, that actually that's not the case. That actually the Pax Romana, the way of Rome, uh, the, uh, the Roman Empire, the Roman propaganda, all of those things are actually the... Uh, not the right way to go. And if you follow that way, if you put your faith and your hope in that way, it's going to end badly for you. And so we saw that uh, it was pictured with God on a throne in the midst of heaven, surrounded by creation being worshipped. And then uh, he has a scroll in his hand that's representing the will of God, you know, God's plan for the end of, of the world, God's plan for reconciling creation to himself. And what's preventing that from happening is sin. And so there was this this big outcry that no one was found in heaven or on earth or under the earth who could open the scroll. And then they said, uh, you know, John begins to weep and lament that fact. Uh, he, he One of the angels pulled him aside and said, look over there, the lion of the tribe of Judah has come conquering and he is worthy to open the scroll. So we get this big comic moment where John looks over expecting to see this mighty conquering lion and instead he sees this sacrificed lamb and so we talked about for the this is the first time in revelation that we really got this impression that the way jesus rules is by dying that unlike rome who kills with a sword jesus rules by being killed he defeats death by dying and that is what makes him worthy to enact god's judgment on the world that is what makes him worthy to bring about god's will on earth as it is in heaven and so then we see jesus begin to open the scroll and, and, you know, he's popping off the seals and literally all hell starts to break loose on earth. Uh, and then we got the trumpets. And we got this weird interlude towards the end of that, right before, if you remember, we had this big pause before the end of the seventh trumpet. And we had this powerful statement about the church's role in all of this. Because so far what we've been seeing is kind of uh, God's kingdom coming and Rome being crushed under that. And we were sort of excited, but wondering, well, what, how does this actually help the church Endure, and we saw, you know, with where the where an angel brings the scroll down uh, after the lamb has opened it, and, and it has John eat it, which is a prophetic call to say, now that you know this prophecy, now that you know the the way that things are going to unfold, you have an <clears throat> obligation, a responsibility as the people of God to bear witness to this truth, to bear witness to the reality that this is God's world, and that God's way is the way to life, and all other ways lead to the, to all of the death and the destruction that we've been seeing. And so uh, we, 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 along with John, were challenged to be those witnesses that were imitating the life of Jesus and bearing witness to the life of Jesus in our own life and suffering. And so that ended with the seventh trumpet sounding and with heaven being opened up and the Ark of the Covenant being revealed and the end of all things. And God was no longer he who was and who is and who is to come. He was just he who was and who is. Because the end is coming and the end is, and is there. So then we still have a lot of book left, even though we got to the end. So we, we, we rewound the clock and we spun things to a little bit of a different angle because there was still this looming question. We wondered, well, why is it that there is evil and suffering? Why is it that Rome has any power at all? Why, why is the will of God being opposed? 
And so we saw, and that's that's where we are now. We're in the, in the middle of all of this plot. And so we saw uh, a woman who represented the church, and we saw this dragon representing Satan, the incarnation of all evil. And we saw that at the death and resurrection of Jesus, Satan was cast out of heaven and cast down to earth. And this was the big final ultimate defeat of, of evil. And that after Satan was cast out of heaven, after evil was cast down in the wake of the resurrection and the ascension, that there is now, uh, now all we have to do is bide our time and wait. Uh, the, the battle's already been won, uh, and Christians have nothing at this point to lose. Uh, all we have to do is remain faithful to God. But we saw that because the end isn't here yet, Satan is angry, and he wants to take as many people down with him as he can. Because the only way that he can hurt God at this point moving forward is by hurting God's people and by getting us to renounce the testimony of Jesus and renounce the name of Jesus. That's the only thing he can do to us. And so the question was, well, how is Satan going to get believers to sacrifice the truth of the gospel? How is he going to get us to betray the truth of God? How is he going to get us to turn our backs on the word of Jesus and to, instead of following the way of Jesus, follow any other way. It didn't particularly matter which way. And so we saw that the, the dragon recruited this army in the form of an empire. And we looked at, though it's specifically, of course, for the first century, it's Rome. We kept having this, this struggle of the fact that it's really more than just Rome. It's really this human impulse to try to take God's place. And so by the time you got to the end of chapter 13, you saw that there was this sort of unholy trinity that parodied God and Jesus and the church. Instead of God, you had the dragon. Instead of uh, Jesus, you had the beast, the empire. And instead of the church, you had these false prophets who looked like the lamb but spoke like the dragon. They looked like Jesus. They looked like the church. But when they speak, they're speaking the words of Satan. And we matched that up with those false prophets that we saw in some of the churches in the early days. And, and, And John was saying, look, you have to watch out for these people that are advocating compromise and worship of someone who's not God. You have to be very, very careful of that. And so then, uh, and then we saw that, that in opposition to the dragon's army, the lamb has recruited his own army. And the, the lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and the 144,000 that we saw from clear back uh, during the seal judgments were standing with him. And so you have an army composed of people who have been sealed by the lamb, who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, and then people who have been sealed by the mark of the beast, that they are following the way of the beast, and they've received his mark on their forehead versus the, those who have been sealed by the lamb. So then last week, uh, we got into a discussion of uh, how this war is progressing and moving forward. And we talked about, uh, we talked about how throughout the scriptures, the, uh, God's wrath has been pictured as a cup of wine that the nations are forced to drink. And that God's wrath has always been revealed against his people as empire. And so that all culminated in the cross because it was on the cross that Jesus was crushed by the empire. Uh, the cross was the Roman uh, way of crucifying people who tried to oppose the empire. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he bore the wrath of God uh, against us. He, he took our place dying under the empire. And so we saw that uh, God, uh, there was this harvest where the grain, grain was harvested and grapes was harvested and then crushed. And the, the picture was that God is both the harvester, the judgment bringer, and he's also the harvester. He's the one who uh, receives the judgment on our behalf. And so then we looked, then we saw uh, that out of all of that, out uh, in the wake, again, in the wake of the cross, with all of these things, we saw the seven bowls of wrath and how this was the, the, so the final time we've been through this cycle where instead of halves or quarters of everything being destroyed, it was full measures of, you know, all of the oceans turned to blood, all of the animals died, all, all of these things were happening. And so uh, that all then culminated last week in the, in the seventh bowl and the end of all of that stuff. And so we have to be wondering by this point, what in the world 
is what in the world is left for us to see as we approach these final chapters of the book. So today we are going to look at uh, probably some of the uh, most, I don't know if risque is the right word to use, but uh, it uses the word horror a lot. And so uh, whatever, the risque or something, we're going to talk about the horror of Babylon. And it, depending on your translations, it might say harlot or prostitute or uh, something like that. But this is, uh, we're going to begin in Revelation chapter 17 today. So, uh, so before we read this, I want to kind of unpack, because, you know, anytime we talk about the horror of Babylon, everyone's like, ooh, that's pretty, no one likes to use that word anymore. Um, but the, the, the image that's used, and we could call her a prostitute again, or a harlot or whatever, but, but the, it's the image of a, a woman of the night, or uh, however you'd want to call her. Pro- probably prostitute is the best word for us to use today. But throughout this chapter, as, as it's describing her, uh, the, the the word in Greek is uh, the word porneia. It's where we get our word pornography. And it's most, mostly translated fornication. But there are multiple different forms of this word that keep getting used over. So people are fornicating with her, or she has fornication, and all of that. And it's, it's a very strong sexual image that's used. Uh, the, it talks about kings fornicating with her and merchants fornicating with her and all these different people. And it's interesting because at the, if you think about what that word represents, this, this adultery, at the, at the heart of it is a transgression of the boundaries of a covenant relationship. Uh, when you engage in illicit sexuality, what makes it illicit is that you have a covenant with someone, a spouse or even with God, whoever, and you're stepping outside of that covenant. You're transgressing those boundaries. And if you remember, that is a if clear back in our discussion about the, the demon locusts and all of that, the unclean animals and that kind of stuff, like woven into the heart of the way of God is this idea of appropriate boundaries. And that God has an order set out for things and a way that leads to life. And when we transgress that way in any way, that leads to death. And so throughout the scriptures, uh, the prophets loved this image of uh, of prostitution. Uh, it's, it's throughout the New Testament. They use this idea of, of fornication, of prostitution, of illicit sex, uh, sex in order to talk about the severity of our transgressions of our relationship with God. So whenever you see adultery or fornication or some word like that in the scriptures, do some really hard checking to make sure that it's not metaphorical. Uh, because usually it can it can cover anything from actual intercourse to idolatry, uh, and in fact, most of the time you see it, especially in the Old Testament, it's probably referring to idolatry. Uh, che- I mean, again, you can think of it as cheating on God, you know, betraying this covenant that you've made with God. And so, it's interesting because as we're getting into this, uh, well, well, we'll talk about that. In a minute. Let's read chapter seventeen. Chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. Then, after the seven bowls, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came to me and said, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great whore who is seated on the many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, with whom uh, and with the wine of whose fornication the inhabitants of the earth have become drunk. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. <coughs> The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls and holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her fornication. 
And on her forehead was written a name, a mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of whores and of earth's abominations. And I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the witnesses to Jesus. Let's pause there uh, and talk about who this woman is, and then we'll get into uh, what happens to her. So um, we see uh, the most important thing is that, you know, again, that this woman is committed fornication with all of the kings of the earth. She's, she's enticing them to betray the way of God. She's enticing them away from the way that they're supposed to be ruling, living, and into her way. And her want, her cup is full of what is called the wine of her fornication, which again, uh, if we understand and that this woman is uh, somehow tied to that that empire that the beast represents, you know, she's she's writing him. Uh, there's this implication in the text that the empire is seductive. Uh, that there's something alluring about the power and the uh, the prestige and the freedom that comes along with the way of the beast. Um, if everyone could see it the way it really is, no one would fall for it. You know, if if you looked at if you looked at Rome or Babylon or Egypt or any of the empires throughout history and you were able to see behind the curtain the way John has taken us behind the curtain to see how monstrous and ugly and ridiculous they are we would laugh and people would not participate in them but the reason that we don't is because they're so attractive and so really the image of a prostitute works really well here that you you look at them and at first glance if you're not careful you can be taken in by them you can be seduced by them but in fact uh, they represent Something very, very bad. They represent uh, they represent unfaithfulness to God and unfaithfulness to your way, and, and ultimately they lead to death. So, it's John uses this this symbol of this woman who's you know all dolled up. She's got all this makeup on. She's wearing all these clothes, and she's sort of like staggering back and forth as she's drunk on the back of this beast. And it's it's actually sort of a comic image, and you almost, I, at least I I feel almost sorry for her. Uh, a little bit um, until you read, I guess that the wine is the blood of the saints or whatever. Then, then, it, then it's easier to be mad at her. But she's not uh, when when the way that John presents her here, she's not particularly desirable, uh, and that's that's the point. He he's trying to underscore uh, that whoever this woman is, whatever exactly she represents, it's not something that we want to be participating in. So uh, the way that she's being presented here, especially writing atop the beast, uh, she she pretty clearly evokes. The way that the goddess Roma was often portrayed in uh, Roman literature, we'll get into that a little bit more when um, uh, when we get into who the beast, uh, how the how the beast is identified here. But um, it's interesting because you know here's a great example of a of relief showing Roma. You know she's kind of reclined on this chair and she's surrounded by all these minor gods and she has all these uh, symbols of bounty around her and she's meant to look she's meant to look very enticing. And that's the whole point. Again, the way Roman propaganda functioned was, you want this, so this is who you need to worship. Look at our goddess. Look at look at how good following her is. Right? And then John presents this parody picture of her. He's like, well, let me show you another picture of her. Is that really who you want to follow? Is that really who you want to be a part of? Um, he's presenting Roma instead of as a goddess, as 
a prostitute, as a temptress, someone who offers a false intimacy and an illusion of fidelity. So uh, she's also pretty plainly contrasted with the woman that we met in chapter 12 who was sitting under the sun. Uh, and, and if we remember, that woman was an in- embodiment of the church. So that actually gives us a really good clue to the identity of this uh, prostitute. Um, that woman in chapter 12 was clothed with the sun, and she's giving birth to the Messiah. This woman is dressed in purple and gold. She's she surrounded herself with the, uh, the accoutrements of royalty, of wealth, and she bears the mark of the beast on her forehead. Her, on her forehead it says, Babylon the Great. Right, which is the name of the beast. And so um, John calls her a mystery, which is a, a big clue that we, we shouldn't take what we're seeing at face value. We should dig. We should um, look at deeper at who this woman is. And sure enough, instead of, instead of giving birth to the people of God, which is the woman in chapter 12 did, right? The mother not only of the Messiah, but then she was the mother of the church. Uh, instead of that, this woman is drunk on the blood of the saints. So she's actually part of the beast's machine, which is not a big surprise since she's drinking or she's riding on the back of the beast. And so if if the if this woman in chapter twelve is some sort of overarching symbol of the church, if 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 she wraps up not only Israel's history but then all of the church history into this kind of big, massive symbol of the bride of God you know, the mother of the church, the mother of Christ, then this woman is functioning in a similar but opposite way. She is representing the, the companion to the beast and to the dragon. All of those people who have chosen to follow the beast and worship the beast are sort of wrapped up in this image of this other woman, this, this mother of prostitutes and abominations. And so the question, again, like we've been seeing over and over and over throughout the book, is sort of whose mother are who Who is your mother? Right? Is your mother is your is your mother the church, the bride of God? Or is your mother this this false mother? You know, are you are you a child of illegitimate religion? Are you a child of uh of unfaithfulness and all and all of that? So let's go ahead and is that good enough for the moment? Let's go ahead and finish seventeen, because there's Fun stuff coming up. So as all of us probably are, John says, When I saw her, I was greatly amazed. But the angel said to me, Why are you so amazed? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. We all say, Thank you. We love it when an angel explains stuff for us. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to ascend from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. Notice the mirror of the of how God is described. God is the one who was and who is and who is to come. This is the one who was and who is not and who is about to ascend from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, they will be amazed when they see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Now this calls for a mind that has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Also they are seven kings of whom five have fallen, one is living, and the other has not yet come. And while, when he comes, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth but belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are the ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour. 
together with the beast. These are united in yielding their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. And he said to me, The waters you saw, where the whore is seated, are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the whore. They will make her desolate and naked. They will devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by agreeing to give their kingdoms to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. The woman you saw is a great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Okay. Okay, so he confirms, uh, the angel confirms for us that this is the same beast that we saw in chapter 13, not a big jump, right? And then he goes on, so there's some interesting things going on here. He goes on to describe the beast as Rome. I mean, when he says the seven heads or the seven hills that the city sits on, you're like, okay, seven hills of Rome, yeah, 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 big, big surprise. But as we've been seeing, especially in this last section of the book, there's actually sort of a deeper uh, meaning to that. In the ancient world, mountains were the place where heaven and earth were, meeting, were met. That's why people built temples on the tops of mountains. That's why in Greek mythology, the gods lived where? Mount Olympus, right? Uh, where did Moses go meet God? Mount Sinai, right? The Samaritans built their temple on Mount Gerizim. The Jews built their temple on Mount Zion. Okay, mountains, and, and again, when we say mountains, like we think Rocky Mountains or like, Mount Kilimanjaro or something like that. These were actually hill. I mean, they were more hilly. If you've ever seen pictures of them, they're, you could climb them without all of the gear and stuff. So, uh, but they were high places. And so the high places were these meeting places between heaven and earth. It was the place where they were the closest to touch, and that was where God and humanity would meet. So it's interesting that in John's sacred symbolic geography, Seven mountains can represent the, the, the pinnacle, the consummation of human ambition, right? Seven being the number of completion or totality. And so, so this sort of beca- becomes also a picture of a latter-day Tower of Babel, that, that this is the place where all human ambition is reaching towards the sky and trying to meet with God. And this woman is seated atop all of that. Okay, she's riding on this beast. So again, we see that same thing we've been seeing. Even though the, the first sort of obvious referent is Rome, there's this deeper, yeah, but it's not just Rome. It's really this, this spirit that's always been a part of humanity. That, that we keep trying to put ourselves in the place of God. We keep trying to pile up our accomplishments and lord it over everyone and remake the world in our image. Now, as far as these kings and horns and stuff, uh, commenters have been arguing forever about who they are and can you match them up with different people and all of that and maybe you can maybe there's going to be seven kings at some point but again if you stick to John if you stick to the the, the symbolic numbers uh, it fits in with what we've seen, been seeing as this common theme in Revelation if the sixth king is reigning and the seventh king is about to come that means it's almost the end but it's not quite the end yet and we've seen that with the trumpets. We've seen that with the seals, with the Bible. We've seen it over and over and over again. This book. It's, almost, it's almost the end, but it's not quite the end. It's almost the end, but it's not quite the end. Uh, and it's interesting that it says that the eighth, the eighth king is this beast, that this beast came out of the seven, and he is one of them. The, the, the Greek language, the Greek that's used there is very, very weird. 
Uh, but this is also interesting because we we saw clear back in chapter thirteen that the the beast was a parody of the lamb, right? One of his one of his heads was struck down with a fatal blow, and then he had a re- resurrection, and that he's that he's gathering the armies just like the lamb has his army and all of that. And in the early Christian circles, eight was the number that belonged to Jesus. So if you add up his name, just like you know we did with the mark of the beast thing, if you add up Jesus's name, Jesus's number is eight eight eight. And, and then again, the Christians loved that that worked out because in Genesis, there's seven days in the creation week and, you know, started on Sunday, ended on Saturday. And that fit really, really well with the fact that Jesus raised, was raised from the dead on Sunday because that made Jesus' resurrection the first day of a new creation week. And so when we talked about how everything died and all things are being made new in Jesus' death and resurrection, well, that, that lent itself some really heavy biblical symbolic weight. That Jesus rose from the... So you, you will hear some Christian commentators say that Jesus rose from the dead on the eighth day. And the point of that is we all know that there are not eight days in a week, that there are only seven days in a week. And that means that Jesus rose from that on the first day of a new creation week. It's not just business as usual. It's not just that we're stuck in the same cycle of uh, death and, you know, birth and death and birth and death. And birth. But now, now there's this new thing happening and it doesn't fit into the sevens anymore. It has to be this eighth thing bursting forth. And so it's interesting that here again we see the beast is parodying by, by calling him the eighth one who's part of that part of the seven uh, he's still trying to copy and mimic jesus he's still trying to set himself up as a false savior uh, which is what we've seen the beast doing uh, throughout this whole time and then so we see that uh the whole world these 10 kings right 10 being the number of totality are going to give their power to the beast and we're about to see this we'll actually see this at the end of the day today their rule is going to be shockingly brief. This is this is the shortest measure of time that we see in the Revelation. It says just an hour, just an hour, very very short, um, compared to the three and a half days, three and a half years, a thousand years coming up next time, All right? Um, but what what we're underscoring here, as we march forward through this, uh, is that there is no opposition to the Lamb. This is the, the outcome of all of this process is just not in question, even a little bit. And so uh, pay attention as, as we move through chapter 18 uh, to where the just for an hour comes up again. So this chapter ends with, uh, to me, probably one of the most disturbing images in, in a book full of disturbing images because we see finally how God's judgment is re- revealed against this idolatry. Now remember, if if this woman is a, is a mirror of the church, if she's sort of meant to represent all of the people who have put their stock in this false way, if they're all of the people who have trusted the way of the beast, who've received the mark of the beast, all of those people who said, who is like the beast and who can make war on him? If that's, if that's who this woman represents then we see what actually ends up happening to those people. And that is that the beast turns and devours her. And so again, the message here is, and this, you know, this is, this is something we see over and over and over again with any, any empire, any uh, empire kind of a system uh, is that the, the empire doesn't actually care about the people that are a part of it. It will use them. It will it will use them to further their rule. It will use them to spread their false gospel. It will use them and use them and use them. But the moment that they quit being useful, the empire devours them. 
cast them aside. Um, and so we see that that's exactly what happens to this woman here. Um, I wrote in my notes, if the whore represents those who have prostituted themselves to the beast's power, if they've sold themselves to the beast for what the beast offers, then we see their fate. Their fate is that they are, they're devoured by that. They're consumed by it. Uh, this is the first, this is the first picture. I, I was trying to think back throughout the book so far. And I th- this is the first of several pictures we're going to see uh, tonight even. But this is the first time that we start, we get a sense that there are, there's more, there's more to the beast's army than just faceless powers and principalities. You know, we keep talking about empire and, and all of that being behind what the beast is. But here we see, well, no, there's actual, there's actual people in this. And, and this is where I guess I said I start to feel sorry for the horror of Babylon because she, she was all propped up on the beast and she was enjoying this power and all of the gold and the purple that she was wearing. And you know, she had all of this wine and she was, you know, just the picture of this opulent, extravagant lifestyle that she was enjoying uh, at the expense of the people of God. But then it, we see where it takes her and what ends up happening to her, and it's that all of that system turns around on her, and, and it crushes her as well. And so I hope that there's at least a little bit of room in our heart for some compassion uh, for the people who are caught up with this woman. Uh, and if there's not yet, there will be by the end of the class, I'm pretty sure of it. So, any questions about chapter 17? We moved through that pretty fast, but we're going to keep building on it. I don't know who the seven the seven heads and the ten horns are. So, Okay, let's read chapter 18 then. Chapter 18, uh, now, that the, now that the horror of Babylon has died, now we have her funeral. Uh, and very, uh, very good ancient fashion. We have mourners who are singing funeral dirges and everything. So here we go, chapter 18. After this, after the woman was consumed, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his splendor. He called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. It has become a dwelling place of demons, a haunt of every foul spirit a haunt of every foul bird, a haunt of every foul and hateful beast. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxury. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you do not take part in her sins, so that you do not share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities." Render to her as she herself has rendered, and repay her double for her deeds, and mix a double drop for her in the cup that she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, so give her a like measure of torment and grief. Since in her heart she says, I rule as a queen and I am no widow, and I will never see grief. Therefore her plagues will come in a single day, pestilence and mourning and famine. She will be burned with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who judges her. Let's pause there before we get into the people who are mourning, because that's all very excited. Um, So an angel descends to view this abandoned, destroyed city that is actually this woman, that that is Babylon. It's all kind of wrapped up. And he explains 
the reason for the city's destruction. And here we got all of these echoes of these themes we've been seeing throughout the book, right? That the nations of the kings have fornicated with her. They've, they followed her way instead of the way of God. Uh, they said that her, her sins are piled up to the heaven, which is, again, a, a wonderful Tower of Babel imager, image. Um, this, and, then the, and then there's the second thing where another voice comes out of heaven, and it's, and it's a warning to believers. And it says, come out of her, come out of her, my people. Um, this reflects the reality of the revelation. Even though the city has fallen, Obviously, it is still there. Obviously, uh, just like just like even though Satan has been cast down, he's still active in the world, right? Even though the city has fallen, even though God has declared it's over and done with, uh, there's still there's still people living there, still life happening. Uh, you can look around, and it, it looks like business as usual. And so. The, the message to us is come out now. Don't wait for the end. Don't wait for these plagues to be heaped upon it. Don't wait for all of these things to happen. And we've seen, right, several of these seven churches are guilty of that. They're guilty of being a part of the city. They're guilty of being a part of the way of life in that city and of compromising with the empire. And, and this is saying, look, guys, you've got to knock it off. You've got to come out of that. And so we get a, we get a picture in this warning of that same kind of divine judgment that we've been seeing. God is giving over to Babylon what Babylon has been doing this entire time. And so in the meantime, the believers are, are called to just stay out of that. Don't participate in what Babylon has been doing. So in the next three sections, we get to hear what Babylon has been doing. And who, who, who is mourning? Not any... I'm assuming most of you read, try to at least skim through this part. Uh, any, if you didn't, any guesses at who's going to be sad? Who, who's mourning at this funeral? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's the people who profited from the system. Right now that the system's gone, they're pretty upset. So let's read. Beginning in verse 9. The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived in luxury with her, will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, the great city, Babylon, the mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels and pearls, fine linens, purple, silks and scarlet, all kinds of scented wool, all articles of ivory, all articles of costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, olive oil, choice flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, slaves, human lives. The fruit for which your soul longed has all gone from you. And your dainties and your splendor are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares, who gained from her wealth, will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, the great city, clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in one hour, all this wealth has been laid to waste. And all the shipmasters and seafarers, sailors, and all those who trade, whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? 
And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in one hour she has been laid to waste. So again, we, we saw in all three of those this idea of the, the single hour, right? The, the quick, short period of time that it didn't take long at all for Babylon's destruction. It was just over and done. Uh, so of course, all those kings who had given their power to the beast are now mourning that Babylon has gone. Uh, the part that I thought I was most struck by, though, uh, was these merchants. Because they can't profit anymore from the world's warped and bent desires. Uh, it even said in verse 14, the fruit for which your soul longed has all gone from you. Uh, Romans chapter 1 talks about how our desires are meant to point us to God. We're supposed to want things so that they point us to the creator of those things. Uh, and what happens in idolatry is that our desires, our wills, get bent and distorted and twisted, and so we end up worshiping the thing instead of the creator of the things. And here we see that there was this whole industry that profited from people's warped desires. It profited from the fact that they would sell people stuff that they thought they wanted, stuff that they thought would fill them up. And of course it didn't, because nothing can satisfy, nothing can satisfy our desire for God except for God. As Augustine said, we are our hearts are restless until they find our rest in Thee. Right. Just thinking about it, you know, when, when the global collapse, financial collapse comes, and the Antichrist basically takes over and controls those that can buy or sell. That aptly describes all of this, mm-hmm. because up until that time, the world markets can actually control what's going on. Well, what, what's what I find compelling about these merchants? So, so the uh, did, did you notice the the exceptionally detailed list of products? <laughs> like, just kept going and going and going. Uh, one commentator I read pointed out that there are twenty eight individual products listed, which in in John's numerical world is four times seven. Seven being the number of totality or wholeness or fulfillment. Four being the number of the earth. So there's a sense in which this represents all of the products of the earth. I don't know why he didn't just say all of the products of the earth instead of making up 28 things to list out. Except that the last one is human life. As he's listing all of these different products, he actually includes as a product that is bought and sold humanity. And of course, in the ancient world, there was a slave trade. In the modern world, there's a a slave trade. But I would say, thanks to our multi-billion dollar advertising machine in this country, more than ever, humanity has been turned into a commodity. Bodies are, and I I actually was going to do a whole little slideshow of the way we use bodies to sell products, but I couldn't find any that were appropriate enough uh, to show but we use bodies to sell everything. And we are con- we are taught never to be satisfied. I mean, there's a reason that we airbrush models, and it's not so that they're prettier. Well, it is so that they're prettier. But the whole point is that 
you cannot find a picture of a man or a woman in a magazine that actual that is a realistic picture of a man or a woman. Even the model whose picture it is doesn't actually look like that, because they want they want us to see unattainable ideals. They want us to see things that are actually literally unrealistic. Because when we don't know that they're unrealistic, when we don't care that they're unrealistic, we keep trying to get that. And we think, for some reason in our brains, we think, if I just buy that ballpoint pen, then I'll have that rock and bod. Right? And then when we say it out loud, we laugh at it, but that's how we act. And so we constantly chase after these things that billions and billions and billions of dollars every year are spent to convince us will make us happy when the people selling them know they won't make us happy. They just want us to think that they will make us happy so that we'll keep buying them, so that we'll keep trying to find our meaning in those things. And that's, that's the way that empire works. Empire, never, empire doesn't want you to figure out that God is the source of your fulfillment and happiness. Because then you don't need them anymore. Then when they say things like, you know what, you really just need one more McDonald's hamburger and that will, that will fill up that hole inside of you with calories and artery grease. They don't, they, don't want you to, they don't want you to know that that's a joke. They don't want you to think, well, maybe the next time will. Maybe I need just a little bit better model car. Maybe I need just a little bit bigger house. Maybe I need just a few more gadgets. Maybe, maybe if I had what they have, I'd be happy. But we all know that the most miserable people in the world are the richest people. Not just because the scriptures tell us that, but because we've seen reality. We know that money doesn't buy happiness is more than just a cliche. We know these things, yet we still continue to live to make choices in this system. And there are a whole set of merchants that are very, very happy that we continue to do that. And when all of that comes to an end, it will be very, very sad. Because they can't continue to make profit off of us anymore. They can't continue to turn us into commodities. They can't continue to take the image of God and reduce it to something that can be bought and sold. Uh, the final section of the dirge of this funeral is an angel who throws a millstone into the sea. So let's read that. So after everyone's been mourning on the earth, now we see rejoice over her, O heaven, you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, with such Violence! Babylon the great city will be thrown down and will be found no more. And the sounds of harpists and minstrels and of flutists and trumpeters will be heard no more. And any artisan of any trade will be found in you no more. And the sound of the millstone will be heard in you no more. And the light of the lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will be heard in you no more. For you merchants were the magnates of the earth and all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in you was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all who have been slaughtered on the earth. So we've had this 
woman, this harlot, this prostitute. We saw her destruction. We saw her funeral. And now we move back up into heaven and we see the other woman again. We're, you know, we're being bounced back up. And now we're seeing this bride. Beginning in 19.1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power to our God, for his judgments are true and just. He has judged the great whore who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they said, Hallelujah. Smoke goes up from her forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen and Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God. All you his servants and all who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed the voice to be the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty thunder peals, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. To her it has been granted to be clothed with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." And an angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He said, These are the true true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your comrades who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So, unsurprisingly, when we get back into heaven, they're worshiping like they were when we left. And heaven, uh, they're, they're worshiping the fact that finally, 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 God's judgment has been enacted. Finally, the blood of the saints has been avenged. Finally, all of these wrongs have been put right. And they're now preparing for the wedding, uh, the great wedding feast of the Lamb. And so we, we meet this, uh, the woman is a, a bride now, and she still stands as the complete and total opposite of the whore. Right? Rather than being dressed in gold and purple and with this big cup of uh, wine uh, that is the blood of the saints, she's standing dressed in pure white linen, which we are told is the, is the righteous deeds of the saints. And this, it ends with this wonderful, I, it's hard to imagine a better coda, you know, where John sees all of this, and then the angel says, you know, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he falls down to worship, and the guy's like, dude, have you not been paying attention? You only worship God. <laughs> Stop right now. Uh, that over there. Um, I, just, I think it's funny. Uh, so, uh, so there's an interest. There's an interesting. There's an interesting tone in this whole section, and it's something that I think as Christians, uh, it's pretty easy to fall into. And I'm, I'm astounded by the way that the Revelation undercuts it. Uh, you know, throughout this book, we've been seeing what it costs to follow Jesus. Uh, how easy it is to follow the way of our culture. To buy into uh, how our culture does things. Uh, instead of being faithful to Christ. Instead of doing what we know is right. And we see, we see that all of these, like the way of the world, the way the world responds to empire is just to go along with it. To say, who, who is like this? Who, has there ever been anyone as awesome as this? And we just, their way is the best way. And, you know, let's put a McDonald's on the corner or a Walmart across the street and a Starbucks next to that. Um, 
and it's I, at least for me, I get you know when those when those m- martyrs are under the altar and they're crying out and they're like, "What is the deal? Like, what is taking so long? When are you going to avenge us?" Like, there's a part of me that even just reading this, I'm like, "Yeah, I mean, how like how long is this going to keep going on? And when are you finally gonna get out there and flip this thing around and set it, you know, set us back up on top? Like, how much longer do we have to be the ones on the bottom?" And so when you see the funeral of the whore and you see everyone mourning for her and you're like, yeah, you deserve it. Like, good. And then it flips back up in heaven and everyone's like, yay, hallelujah, where's what we've been waiting for? Like, it's easy to get caught up in that and it's easy to, um, it's easy to rejoice in the destruction of the wicked. Isn't it? And it's interesting to me that Revelation provides the space for us to do that, at least right now. I don't think that's what it's actually happening right here. But I think there's this space where we can kind of get caught up in that. And uh, just because I'm feeling feisty tonight, I can't help but think about when Osama bin Laden was killed. And how many people were like, good. He deserved it. And he did deserve it. But I saw a shocking amount of rejoicing over the death of the wicked from people who were followers of Jesus. And I get it. Because he did a lot of really, really unconscionable stuff. Absolutely. No question about any of that. And I think that's the same kind of impulse that I feel when I read this. And I feel that I'm like, yeah, about time. And actually, it's about to be about time again when we get into what's about to happen. Because we're expecting this wedding feast, um, but we don't get a wedding feast. Instead, we get Jesus again. So, let's read chapter 19 and verse 11. We'll come back to what I just talked about. promise I'm not just going to lob grenades out there and then walk away. Verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse, which means what? White is victory. Victory. Very good. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flames of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name inscribed that no one but himself knows. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and he is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, wearing fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name inscribed, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Okay, now, there are lots of interpreters. Well, I don't know about lots. There are interpreters who read this revelation of Jesus in chapter 19 as Jesus the lion that we've all been waiting for since chapter 5 when we were promised a lion. And we got a dead lamb instead. Uh, We have this big heroic Jesus, right? Comes out soaked in blood, swinging this big old sword, sort of like Arnold Schwarzenegger Messiah. Right? And he's he's coming to mow him down, man. So you best get out of the way, wicked people. 
And there's an interesting sentiment behind that sense of excitement, because I think that some, I think that a lot of us are still sort of secretly disappointed with a God who would come into the world just to be killed. Like we sort of understand that Jesus probably had to die for us, but what we really want to see is judgment and punishment. We really want to see evil suffer and be destroyed. So at the end of the day, this is our favorite Jesus. This is the one that we've been waiting for. This is the one that gets us really excited. Because finally we have a warrior. Finally we have the lion. Finally we have the one who's going to fight for us. But this raises a question. Is the lamb actually in the end a lion after all? Is Jesus' sacrificial example only good for a little while? But in the end, if we, if we really want God to win, he has to stand up and fight and beat back the beast and the empire's armies with a sword and with strength. Is God's way really the way of the cross or the way of the sword? That's the question we have to ask. And so... There's some interesting things happening in this chapter. And, and, and again, I think, I think Revelation is, is drawing us into all of this. and it's, it's wanting to pull all of this out into the open. It's wanting us to have to face these questions, face these things that we're talking about. And so there's, some, there's several things that in this picture of Jesus undercut that Schwarzenegger Christ that gets, at least it gets me excited. Um, well, first of all, there's some things that don't, right? One is that his judgment is righteous and true, and this is the judgment that we've been waiting for, right? He's going to tread the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God. But remember from last week, we saw that what, what that represents is not the judgment of the wicked. It's Christ's death on behalf of the wicked. That God is the judge, God is the judge but God is also the judged Um, we see that. So this is this is the this is the cool the coolest part of this because, you know, when we see the dragon for the first time and he has seven heads and he has seven crowns on his head and, and that's meant that's meant to look like total authority. You know, seven is that number of full completeness, and and that's why when people looked at the beast, they said, who who is like the beast and who can make war with him? I mean, the the whole point is that evil looks completely impossible to overcome. It looks too powerful to be defeated. But when Jesus rides in, he's not wearing a crown or seven crowns. He's wearing many crowns. So many that you can't count them, apparently. Because John's pretty good at counting things in this book. Uh, He has this name that no one knows. Which again is this, uh, if you remember clear back in like week two, we talked about those amulets that, you know, if you had a name that people knew it gave power over you. And this is, no one has power over Jesus. No one knows his name. There's this mystery to him, this this uh, unfathomability that no matter how intimately we know him, no matter how much of him is revealed to us, there's still more. There will always be more. Unlike the dragon who is known, who is defeated. Um, he's the king of kings. He's the lord of lords. But then we get to the kind of power that he wields. And this is where things get challenging. Because he's not drenched in blood after everything's said and done. 
he comes out of the starting gate with blood on his robe. Because, of course, he's already dead and resurrected. This is his blood. This is yet another picture of of a reminder that Jesus rules by dying. And then we need to spend a little bit of time on this sword. Because I've... There have been several prominent Christian teachers who, when they talk about this passage, they almost uh, they have this almost like this—it's a really creepy sort of excitement when they talk about Jesus coming sword in hand, looking for a fight. And if you were paying attention when we read that, the sword is not in Jesus's hand; the sword is coming out of his mouth. And this is the image that we saw of Jesus clear back in week one. It's been referred to several times throughout this. But this is not this is not a sword that Jesus is wielding to cut people down. This is not a weapon that he is using to smash people. Um, instead, this is a picture of the power of the reality of who God is. Uh, In the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness hovered over the surface of the deep. And then God said. And then it happened. And then God said. And then it happened. And then God said, and then it happened. And then God said, and then it happened. There's an understanding in, and we've talked about this before, but there's an understanding in the scriptural way of thinking that all of creation is the byproduct of God's speech, God's word, and that throughout the fabric of creation, there is the very spoken command of God. And so, and I think I put this on your uh, your note sheets, but uh, when we get into the New Testament, John does this really cool thing with his gospel. He calls Jesus the Word, and he says, In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God, and God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and in his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. So John takes that idea in Genesis that God created through speaking, right? That God's word is not like our words, just kind of, you know, and then they're gone. But God's word is this powerful, effective thing. And it's that aspect of God, this creative, powerful word that actually took on flesh. And as the message has moved into our neighborhood. And... Throughout the scriptures, this same word, so this is the word when, when Isaiah says the word of God will not will goes out and it will not return void. Right? When God speaks, stuff's happen. Stuff happens. In Hebrews, the word of God is living and active and sharper than what? A two-edged sword. So when the word comes riding down on this horse. Of course, out of his mouth is coming this sharp two-edged sword. Now, here's where that gets really interesting. Um, how, how does that apply to judgment and how God judges? Well, in Greek, the word to judge 
actually comes from the word to divide, which is what judging is. Right? I mean, you, you know, if you think about Matthew 25, he'll divide the sheep from the goats, right? Um, when you, yeah, yeah. When you when when, when you judge, you d- you choose. You know, this thing. You know, you're you're dividing in your mind. So here's what uh, here's what John says a little bit, just a couple verses later, or a couple chapters later in his gospel, and you'll know this part. God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son, who's this word, who's this light, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Here's where it gets interesting. God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And some other translations read, this is the judgment uh, that New Living says this, and the judgment is based on this fact. God came into the world. The light shines in the darkness. But people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. And all who do evil hate the light, and they refuse to go near it, for their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so that others can see that they are doing what God wants. When Jesus comes into the world, it's unavoidable. Decisions are made. And you will either be in light or you will be in darkness. And John tells us, and we've seen it over and over and over in Revelation, if if you are a person who does dark things, you stay in the dark. And we know, we've seen it over and over and over, what happens to those who stay in darkness? Over and over and over. The only thing that is there is death. And so we see that here again in this, well, we haven't gotten there yet, but spoiler alert, lots of people are about to die. All that waits for you in darkness is a satanic beast that is going to consume you. And so again, over and over and over, the choice that is put in front of us is, will you be in the light or will you be in the darkness? Will you follow the way of Christ or you follow any of the other ways because they all end in the same place, which is death. And it doesn't take... It doesn't take a sword-wielding Schwarzenegger Christ to bring you that death. It takes truth. It takes the reality of who God is. So what happened in that wedding feast? It's coming up. Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly in midheaven, come gather for the great supper of God. It's weird. Why are birds being invited to the wedding feast? To eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of the mighty, the flesh of the horses and of their riders, flesh of all, both free and slave, both small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against the rider on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured 
and with it the false prophet who had performed in his presence the signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. We'll come back to that next time. This is another one of those places, like when we saw the beast in chapter 11 with the two witnesses, it was like, oh yeah, and then the beast came out of the abyss and killed them. And we're like, whoa, what beast? And we didn't get to meet it until chapter 13, so here again, oh yeah, the beast and the false prophet were tossed in the lake of fire that you haven't heard about until now, and moving on. We're like, go back, go back to that lake of fire, we'll go back to it next week. And the rest... The rest of the kings and the peoples and all of them were killed by the sword of the rider on the horse, the sword that came from his mouth, and all of the birds were gorged on their flesh. Now, a couple of points here. First of all, the supper is announced before the conflict begins, which again points to the fact that there was no question about whether this was going to end any other way than it did. God had already won, so this was only going to end this one way. And secondly, sure enough, there isn't actually a battle. You know, you have, you again, it's like if you're watching a movie, like this is the huge climax. You see all these cutscenes of armies, you know, soldiers putting their armor on and all massing up together and all drum rolls and the music starting to get swell. And then just when they're about to fight, it's like, oh yeah. And then the beast and the false prophet were thrown in the lake and then everyone else died. Like, like what? Really? But again, that's because the, the battle was already won at the resurrection. And in the wake of that, there is no fighting that is left. All that there is, is when Christ is revealed, where will you stand? As Christ is revealed now in the, Re- in the Revelation, where do you stand? And I hope, I hope that this passage is troubling to us. It's super gruesome in my opinion. Because everyone likes a good wedding reception. Right? Especially when they do a dinner. We love that. Unless you're the last table and get the last leftover food. But if you're like the third table, that's love that. And so we're thinking, marriage supper of the lamb, this ought to be awesome. And again, this is what we've been waiting for. The whole book, our whole lives, we've been waiting for evil to be cast down. For bad people to get what's coming to them. And for us, faithful, good believers, to receive our reward. And now we thought John was going to give it to us. He said, John, now make sure you write this down. Blessed are they who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're like, that. yeah. That's me, baby. I'm reading it. And then instead, we get this horrific, gruesome image. Where instead instead of us being the ones who are invited, it's the birds of the air. And instead of a, a nice wedding feast with linens and good silver and the crystal that you can flick and make noises with and all of that, instead, it's this the aftermath of this gruesome battle. I think there's a couple of things going on here. But, but mainly, I hope this is meant to subvert our feelings towards the people who are not of the church. And I hope it's a clarion call for us to wake up and be active, not inactive, when it comes to embodying the gospel, living out the way of Jesus in the world. Because, clear back in chapters 10 and 11, 
was when we were charged with this prophetic call. When John ate the scroll and then we saw the picture of the two witnesses. This is called that you, church, are to live out the death and resurrection of Christ in your life. Your life should look just like the life of Christ. You now have received this revelation. You know that God is going to judge the world. You know what that judgment looks like. You know the cost of compromise. And now you must bear that message to the world. So we had a job description. And who was gathered at this battlefield? Not just the beast, not just the kings, but everyone in the world who was not a part of the army of the Lamb, who was not a part of the church. So these people who are the hors d'oeuvres at the wedding supper of the Lamb, to continue in the gruesome vein, are the people who were our responsibility. They're the people that we were to be reaching with the gospel. They are the world that we were called to love the same way God loves. And so John is warning us and saying, look, before you get too caught up in celebrating, do you know what is at stake? Have you really wrapped your mind around the fate of the people who don't have a clue? They're like that woman riding on that beast, thinking that they're on top of the world, and they have no idea what is about to happen to them. And so for me, that's a, that's a staggering picture. It takes all of those excited feelings that I had and those feelings of vengeance and triumph, and it, it, it takes the wind out of them. And it brings me back around to a place of compassion uh, and love. Because we, uh, you know, if Jesus, if Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness, then the church is to be, as Jesus told us, a city on a hill, a lamp in the house that's showing everyone the way. And so, of course, we are to come out of the great horror. But that doesn't mean we leave, because how could we leave? It means that we are to be light in the darkness, not darkness in darkness. It means that we are to live in such a way that our lives bear testimony to Jesus and to the way of Jesus. We know that the way of Babylon leads to death, but that should not be something that we rejoice about. That should be something that moves us to compassion and to mercy and to acts of love and sacrifice on their behalf. The same way that Jesus offered himself to us. So again, one more one more tack on the, the gruesomeness of 19. Um, and I promise I'm done. We want, we want the people around us to be guests at the wedding feast, not its main course. I'm done. No, no more of that. Unless it didn't stick, and then we'll do more of that. So, we only have a few minutes left. Uh, I, I, le- I put some pretty tough questions in the application bit. Uh, 
I think we need to acknowledge that there are things about our culture that are not of the gospel. And there are specifically things in our culture that we are tempted to participate in. Not other churches, not more liberal churches. Sure, them too. Yeah, absolutely. But I feel like sometimes when we read the Revelation, it's like we're the... You know, pick one of the bad churches. Like we're like the Pergam- Pergamimiums, and we're we're looking at the Smyrnans, and we're like, man, those guys are so messed up. I hope they're listening to this, and we're not taking an honest account of the way that Christ needs to be revealed in our lives, and the way we need to change. Because sure, Smyrna was messed up, but so was Pergamum. And so maybe you're in Philadelphia or Sardis. Maybe you're one of the really good ones. But assume at least for the sake of the argument that you're not. Assume that there are th- there are places in your life where you are being tempted to compromise the gospel. Start there. And again, if you're one of those churches, then great. Help some of the other people around you to see how Christ is revealed in their life. Um, so take just... Oh Tell you what, let's do this. Uh, give us some of the people around you. Look through all those questions and pick out a couple that you really want to talk about. And uh, spend about five minutes discussing that stuff, and we'll bring it back together before we close. So, oh yeah, look look at this fun graphic I found. There we go. Some That's from a sermon series some pastor did. So, talk about the American dream, talk about our culture. Hope no one drives a yellow Hummer. If so, it wasn't personal, I promise. Someone made this. <laughs> um, you know, because Babylon the Great City burned. So... <laughs> yeah, spoiler alert, this is the Advent graphic. Um, <laughs> uh, so go ahead, again, look through some of those questions. Uh, find some of the ones that you're really intrigued and you wanted to spend some time discussing, and then we'll come back together in, in about five minutes. Okay, I know that we did not have as much time for discussion as I was hoping that we would, but uh, tell me, and those, those of you who talked about... Uh, <laughs> Those of you who talked about that first set of questions, I'm curious to hear some of your thoughts. Uh, what are the ways uh, that the American dream is attractive? Uh, and uh, what are some promises that the American dream, whatever, however you want to find that, what are, what are some promises it makes that it cannot keep? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great example. So, so what would, you know, if a Christian were to be called to come out of that particular aspect of it, uh, what, what might that look like for a Christian to model something different? And it's anyone, we have a brainstorming session. I think we have to basically give up on the materialistic worldview because, like you said, you can't buy happiness. Okay, good. And if you buy if you buy into the materialistic worldview, then you might spend all your time working to say have all the money in the world and all those things. I mean, your values would just be good. I think it's with the realization that anything that we do have comes from God anyway and sharing. Mm-hmm. So it, it, does, it doesn't stop with you so that you just continue to accumulate, but it just works its way through. Yeah, absolutely. This is, this is actually why uh, in the Christian worship 
uh, gathering, we do an offering time. Because, because, you know, Jesus says over and over how dangerous wealth is. And so we actually set aside a space in our worship gathering for everyone to bring some of their wealth, however much that is, and to give a piece of it back to God, not because God needs our money, right? That's what we talked about on Sunday. But because when we do that, we remember. It's a, it's, a, it's a conscious act of remembering, this isn't what provides for me. This isn't what actually makes me safe and secure and prosperous, right? I have, to, I have to constantly remind myself of that because it's so easy to slip into that. And so it's an opportunity for us to give back what's been given to us. That's, that's, that's why giving is such a great, especially in our culture, uh, sacrificial giving. Not, not just of money, of course, but of resources and time. And like you said, you think usually we're sharing, right? Sharing everything that we have is such a good spiritual discipline. Because when we are sharing, uh, we are remembering that what we have is a gift, and so we, we gift as well. Good. And we're denying yeah. the lie. Yeah, we're denying the lie of materialism that these th- these things make me happy. No, they don't. So I can, I can, I can give them because they don't make me happy. I mean, they, that would be nice, but I'm good with that. Good. I think people also look for money as a way of security. I know you get closer to retirement, you <laughs> think about this thing. So, but again, the, the point is there is no security there. I mean, uh, you can lose it all on a minute. And just ask those people that got hit by Hurricane uh, Sandy. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that happens. Yeah. I mean, you can lose it all. So. Absolutely. Society wants you to earn it, so they can yeah. Good. Uh, what about that second set of questions? Anyone talk about that? The image of Jesus as the warrior king? Do you prefer God as a lion or God as a lamb? Something that I that struck me when we were going through that, that I guess maybe I'd never thought of was. So I'll, I'll say it kind of like bookends. Yeah. So get this picture of Christ on the victory horse. But he's got all these crowns and he's glorious and everything. And that's how he was in Genesis and when the flood happened. And Noah and Moses and Elisha called fire down. He was like that. And when he humbled himself to come down, we see him as the lamb. And to see him in his splendor let, just spoke to me as to how much he stepped down and what he mm. is. Yeah, he he can judge, but God said, "I didn't send him here to judge you. Mm-hmm. I sent him here for him to show you unconditional love and sacrifice, mm-hmm. and show you how you should live, how you should step out of that world and be." Yeah, but who Christ is, I think, getting to your question, he really is that gallant, gallant prince figure, and it meant something to me to think of how he was willing to be obedient and step down from that prestige, that position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's an interesting, um, and the, the New Testament does this really well, there's an interesting inversion of the whole the whole God is king motif, you know, that, that you know, what the New Testament says is that in, in Christ we have the fullest picture of God's nature. And so, uh, how is God a king? Is God a king the way that we think of earthly kings? Well, no. Actually, God is a king by being born in a barn. Kings are born in barns. Kings are born in palaces. But God is the kind of king that's born in a barn. 
you know, and kings conquer and they they lead armies and all of that. And, and how is God king? Well, not like that. He's he's actually the king by by dying, right? And so that's yes, yeah, so it's, like, it's like it's this inversion of that. And so then when we learn to see God through the lens of Christ. All of these, all of these, like images of power and glory and honor, get transformed the way we see them in Revelation, right? Where, where when we see Jesus, he's the one whose eyes are burning like fire and hair is white and all of these, on all of that. So, because what comes up in my head is like the stories you heard when you were a kid of the the prince who became a pauper, yeah, to and then ended up fighting for the poor and. And, and then, but he's really, he really still yeah, is a he's prince, the prince. But yep. he was willing to get down and dirty and help those that needed it. And and the sense in those stories, right, is that he's actually a better prince when he because when he does that, right? I mean, that's you know, before he's not that not that God was a spoiled brat before he became an income. But in those stories, you know, the prince is usually some sort of like rotten jerk, and then he actually learns what learns what it means to be human by yeah. So, but yeah, that. That metaphor quit being about God. So, but when Steve was talking about it, it was very good. <laughs> uh, so, in the interest of time, let's go to that last, just very quickly. Uh, your attitude towards non-believers. Um, how, how does how does this how does this image of the wedding feast affect that? Sort of a loaded question. I guess it's supposed to affect it. But. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, of course, not not all our fault, right? Because they there's still free will; they do have to respond to the gospel. But I don't think it's our fault at all. At all? No, not at all. Okay. I, it, everybody has to have responsibility. Oh, I have sure. Responsibilities to myself to make a decision. These people love the darkness, and they stay in the darkness. You know, I don't. Doubt for a minute that God gave them plenty of opportunities to make a different decision. So, what is then the responsibility of the church to be the image of Christ in the world? Right. We have a responsibility to be light. We don't have a responsibility for someone else's. Right, and that is an important distinction. That ultimately we cannot make people's decisions for them. Those of you who have, especially close family members or friends who are unbelievers, feel that pain every day. You cannot argue someone in the head. Correct. Correct. The wolves don't come near the campfire. Correct. Right. Right. Um, now, the the thing we want to be sure of, especially with yeah. relation to the, the problem I have with that is we can we can rationalize that yes. it's a total inactivity and the their fault, their problem. They have plenty of chance. You know. Right. That's where I have the problem with that. I think I think we're supposed to be motivated to do more. I mean, I think that's where I think we're supposed to be moved. Well, I agree with you, but I also... I mean, the, I the thing that I've been toying with here is, so we have the end of the story, and we didn't save everybody. And if we're supposed to try, you're right. Yeah. But, I mean, this thing's basically telling us <laughs> we're not going to... But it's telling us ahead of time. It's telling us ahead of time, so, you know... Right, and, and, and the weight, the, I hope the weight that we feel out of this, I think the appropriate weight to feel out of this, is am... Is my life reflecting Christ? Am I going into the world as a light? And are people are people seeing the light because of me? And then if they if they choose to go away into darkness, okay, that's their choice. Right. But if I am choosing to be darkness in the midst of darkness, or a 
flashlight that I haven't changed the batteries in in six years, and so I have to bang it against my hand to get even the littlest bit of light, light that kind of light, versus a floodlight, then I have some responsibility, and I ought, I ought to feel the weight that the mission that God has given us as the church in the world is a real mission. I mean, Jesus could have just never gone back to heaven. Right? He could just could have stayed, and we would have had the image of the invisible God here among us forever. But he didn't. He ascended to the throne. And now we are the, we're the body of Christ. We are the image of the invisible God made visible in the world. And so we do, we do have a, we, we have a responsibility. And, and that, and of course we cannot make other people's decisions for them. Of course people are going to reject our witness. But there better be a witness to reject. Alright, we're out of time. We're way past time. Let's pray together. Uh, and we'll get back together in a couple weeks. God, as always, we're grateful for the opportunity to gather and to study your word. Um, we pray that we would have the courage to let this reflect uh, ourselves truly back to us, that we could see uh, an accurate image of how well we are living up to you. Uh, we ask that we would feel the weight of the responsibility that you have given us, and we ask that as we leave this place, we would go considering what we might do to take responsibility for the gospel message in our own lives, that we might shine brighter, and that ultimately we might bring... Uh, we might bring your light into the world, into a, a place that's very dark and that needs that light. We pray these things in the name of your, of your son, Jesus. All right, next next week is Thanksgiving, so we won't meet. We'll meet one more time the week after that, which is while the church will be being decorated. We'll have a secret meeting in here. Don't tell anyone. And uh, we're going to do chapters 20, 21, and 22. So if you want to read ahead, that's what we're going to be doing. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun, and then we're going to hopefully have some time at the end to try to put it all back together. So... Thanks, everyone, as always, and we will see you guys in a couple of weeks.